Well, good morning. I'd like to welcome you to a very exciting time of the year, and that is our annual Christmas cantata. And uh, we are so thankful for all the work that went into putting this together. And uh, we're going to go ahead and, first of all, start out by looking at um, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. And that is the text that we'll be reading this morning. And as we get into the cantata itself, you will see the significance of this passage of Scripture and why we chose this to be our opening Scripture reading. Here's what the Word of God says. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Please let's bow together for a word of prayer as we ask the Lord to bless this service today. Father, we're so grateful for this Christmas season. We recognize that this is a season where we stop and we celebrate the incarnation, the miracle of God with us, Emmanuel. And I pray that this morning as we open up the Word of God and as we watch this cantata and as we hear this music, that all of our attention would be directed to the words of this scripture in front of us and the words of the scriptures that will be quoted before us today, that we would see who Christ is, that we will see why he came, that we will celebrate the incarnation, and that if there is anyone here who has never placed their faith in the finished work of this child, the Lord Jesus, that we would see people turn to you today. We ask all of this in Christ's name.
You always talk about the Messiah coming, but when will he come? No one knows, but God promises that he will. He loves and cares about us and wants to have a relationship with us. Will the Messiah love us the way God loves us? Yes, because he's God in the flesh, and he will save us from our sins. What will he look like? Will he be big and tall? We don't know what he'll look like, but when he comes, it will be a time of great rejoicing. Zacharias, why aren't you getting ready for the temple? I just love watching you with the children. You would have made a wonderful mother. I don't understand why God hasn't answered our prayers. He hasn't sent us children, and he has not yet sent the Messiah. Remember the words of Isaiah. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. He knows our yearning to see the promised one. We must be patient and wait for the day of his appearing.
Baruch Ata Adonai Elenino, Melech Haolam, Hamatsi Lehem Min, Zacharias. Fear not, Zacharias. I am an angel sent by God. Your prayer is heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you will call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers unto the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a prepared people for the Lord. But how can this be? I am an old man and my wife well stricken in years. I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. I have been sent to bring you this good news. But since you don't believe me, you will be struck dumb until the day that these things shall be fulfilled. At last! What, what is it? Can you not speak? You've seen a vision. Come, you must write. Tell me everything you've seen and heard. You've seen the angel Gabriel. I am to bear a son? Me, an old woman? He's to prepare the way for the Messiah, our son. As Rachel said, the Lord has removed my reproach from among men. But why can you not speak, Zacharias? You argued with the angel Gabriel. Well, I guess you'll never do that again. We must celebrate! God has heard our cries! The Messiah is coming!
have figs for you, Zacharias. I do wonder why the Lord took so long to give me a son. I am not young. All day long I am tired and sore and hungry. Mm. You know the challah Cousin Rivka brought? I ate the whole thing. I feel like I haven't eaten in days. I know the hamatashin that Cousin Shira brought. It made me throw up. I used to love hamatashin. Mmm. Mmm. Very good. Oh, 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 no, 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 no. I'll get it. Oh. Oh, thanks. Oh, what a wonderful surprise. It's been so long since we've seen you. We miss your stories about the Messiah. And I miss teaching all of you. I have wonderful news. Do you remember me telling you? that God would send a messenger to prepare us for the Messiah. This baby is that messenger, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Voice in the distance, a voice 
Elizabeth, I've come to visit. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. How is it that the mother of my Lord should visit me? But how did you know? From the moment I heard your voice, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she that believed what the Lord has promised her. I fear not everyone will handle this news as well as you. I'm not married, only betrothed. Many will think me adulterous. It doesn't matter what people think. You have been chosen by God. Rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Take refuge beneath his wings. His faithfulness will protect you.
Elizabeth, I brought you more Hana. Oh, Rivka, I love your Hana. I cannot get enough. Shira, oh, Naomi, so good to see you. Look, Cousin Mary has been visiting for three months. Right, let Cousin Rivka hold baby Zachariah. Oh no, his name is John. But no one in your family is named John. And why wouldn't you name him after Zacharias? Or perhaps Joida? For he was a great high priest. No, uh, his Zacharias, name is John. Zacharias, uh, speak some sense into her. Then write it down. What is Elizabeth to call this baby? His name is John. <gasps> Zacharias! Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has redeemed his people and, <clears throat> and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Thou, child, shall be the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give salvation unto his people for the forgiveness of sins, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Oh, Zacharias, if our joy is this great, imagine what the world's will be when the Lord has come.
Okay, well, our children who are junior church age can be dismissed to the back for your class. And the rest of you, I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles for a few minutes this morning. Let's turn to the book of Luke. And that is what we were looking at this morning as we watched this cantata. And uh, first of all, I want to say a big thank you to all those who put in a tremendous amount of time so that this could come together. And the truth is that uh, the, the folks that were part of the cantata, they practiced every single Wednesday night for a uh, pretty significant amount of time each of those Wednesday nights. We were here uh, yesterday getting ready for this, and I'm very thankful for all the work that went into that. And that is the introduction to the passage of Scripture we're going to look at this morning. So Luke chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 69 down to verse 79. And here's what the Scriptures say. Luke chapter 1, verse 67. And his father Zecharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that, we would grant, that he would grant us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness 
and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, I will tell you that out of all of the passages that we read in the account of the incarnation, this is my absolute favorite portion out of all of those things. And the reason is if you you can't see this from where you are, but you see all those little highlights, okay? All of those little highlights are just some of the things that I feel like if you want to appreciate what took place when the Lord Jesus Christ was born into the world and the significance and the purpose of that, you almost have to take every single one of those highlights and you need to dig into them and absorb them and think about them very deeply. And I will just give you an encouragement that I will not go through every single one of them today because if we did, we'd be here for a long time. But I want to just kind of hit a couple of things here that I hope will encourage you. And it is possible at a season like this, in a country like the United States where Christmas is just a normal holiday, it's a tradition for a lot of families, a lot of people do not stop and consider why we come and we celebrate. And the fact is, as Christians, we do not celebrate like the world around us. We celebrate with an understanding that is rooted in the passage in front of us this morning. I see phrases like, that Zechariah was filled with the Holy Ghost and he prophesied. Do you realize that there were no prophets in Israel for over 400 years leading up to this moment right here? For several hundred years, there was complete silence. No prophecies. And then this man, who had lost the ability to speak, was able to speak. And the first thing that he says are the words that we read here this morning. He talks about God visiting his people. He talks about his people being redeemed. He talks about him raising up a horn of salvation. He talks about how this was spoken to the prophets from the time that the world began. So with those things in mind, I want us to think about what we've just seen in this cantata and consider a couple of the emphases of the text in front of us. The first one that I'll mention is that there were lots of people in the Old Testament who believed in the coming Messiah. In other words, Zacharias, when he is talking, yes, he is speaking by the Holy Spirit. God is literally moving through him. But this man, Zacharias, understood there was going to be a Savior and he anticipated him. And Elizabeth anticipated him. And when the Lord Jesus is brought into the temple and this old man, Simon, holds him there in his hands and he talks about, I've seen your salvation, which you've promised He is understanding something he had anticipated. Another thing is that there were people who carried great burdens. And those burdens were going to be reversed in this moment. I mean, think about this couple, Zacharias and Elizabeth. They were not able to have children. In fact, amazingly, a lot of some of the key people that are a part of this story of God sending redemption could not have children through natural means. It was God's miraculous intervention in their lives. I mean, Abraham and Sarah is an example. Even Isaac, his wife Rebecca was unable to have children and Isaac prayed for her. This woman Elizabeth, she's a part of the story and what does God do? He intervenes at a point in time. The story of redemption is about God's hands at work in people's lives, people whose lives were broken, were burdened and wearied. And I hope you got a little bit of the sense of that as you watched this cantata this morning. Even though these people believed that God was going to send a savior, when it came down to this being personal for them, Zechariah, you're going to have a child. He said, 
whatever. (laughs) Isn't it true it's a lot easier sometimes to trust God with eternity than the moments we find ourselves in right now? I mean, we say we believe him. We say, I'm going to heaven because he promised redemption and I've trusted in redemption. And here I am in this little situation in my life and I can't trust him. And it's like, well, this is a little bit smaller than eternity, folks. And we see that come out of this story. But what I really want you to notice this morning are the rich statements of Zechariah. The first is this. God wants people to know him. Now, when we talk about the character of God, we're talking about someone who created the world out of nothing. Created the world out of nothing. Someone who isn't dependent on you and he isn't dependent on me. He doesn't need us, but he chooses to love us. And he chooses to reveal himself to us. And he chooses to come to us and we see it in the text in front of us. Verse 67 says, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Ghost and he prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who hath, don't miss this word, visited his people. Now, when we see that word visited in our mind, it's like somebody knocked on the door and said, hey, would you like some bread for Christmas? But that's not the idea of he's visited his people. It's far more personal than that. It's far richer than that. When we talk about Jesus being Emmanuel, it means God with us. Emmanuel. But that word visited is a really rich relational term. I'll give you just two examples to help you appreciate this. James 1, 27. He says that pure religion is to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. Now, he's not just saying knock on their door, write them a Christmas card. He's saying go and sit down with them. Interact with them. Carry the burden with them. Come alongside them. That way they can be uplifted. That is the sense of visiting in that little context. Or in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 6, it says, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? And the idea is that God comes to us. We don't go to God. I mean, we respond to him, but he comes to us. Even we see this in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, did they come looking for God and say, hey God, we're looking for you. We've messed up. Please help us out. What do we do? That's not what they did. They were hiding. They were concealing their guilt and their shame. When God comes to them and says, where are you? They were like hiding in the the shadows. Kind of like we do when we're little kids and we've done wrong, you know. Like you, you, almost, you almost know your kids have done wrong sometimes. You walk in the room and you just see in their body language, something's not right. I have no idea what it is. I haven't seen what it is yet. I haven't figured it out, but something's not right. I see that they're like not looking me in the eye. They're kind of sneaking off to the side. That's what they're doing. Why is that? Well, because when we feel the guilt and the shame of our sin, we don't want to go to the one that has, that has had fellowship broken. Yet what does God do? He comes to us. And we see that in the text in front of us. This plan of communion with with God, God and man, it was broken at the fall, but it wasn't done. Broken, but not done. Second thing I want you to notice here is that the broken relationship cannot be restored without the payment for sin. Now, some of us, sometimes in our minds, we get this idea. God is love, which he is. And God is merciful, which he is. And God is gracious, which he is. Therefore, all he's got to do is just come to us. But there's something we don't understand. 
God is holy. And God is righteous. And sin puts a wall of separation between us and God. In fact, if you had grown up in the Old Testament system, you would have seen this over and over and over again. When you sinned, you would have seen the death of an animal, the shedding of its blood, and a sacrifice presented by a priest to God. You'd have seen this over and over and over and over and over again. And and you know what that was? That was something that taught you this very simple principle. Sin is an offense to a holy God. Sin puts a separation between us and a holy God. But you know what you also see in the sacrificial system? You see that God has provided a means through which you can be brought to him. That's what you see. And so every time there was a reminder that sin separates me from God, there was also a reminder that God loves me and he's established a basis for us to have communion again. But all of those sacrifices were not the final sacrifice. They were a picture that pointed people to something that was coming down the road. And so we see it here in verse 68. It says that he has visited and he has redeemed his people. That word redemption has a lot of nuance to it. Part of that word redemption is the idea of there is a debt that is between me and God. And I don't have the power to remove the debt. I don't have the means to pay the penalty. So God has redeemed me to himself by offering to pay in full the payment that I deserve. You say, why in the world would God do that? It's because he loves us. Not because we're worthy. Not because we're good. He did it because he loves us. And so he resolved the debt between us and himself by paying it in full. That's what the cross is all about. He is literally securing something to himself by paying it in full. In Romans 6.23 it says, the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now we're coming into the Christmas season. And I'm just going to assume that most of you are going to either get a gift or give a gift, right? Now, when you get a gift, does the gift come with a price tag that you've got to pay? No, it doesn't. In fact, I was taught when I was a kid that you're supposed to take the price tag off so that when you get the gift, nobody knows how much it was costing except the person who paid for it. Maybe you weren't taught that. Doesn't really matter. But it's a principle that we understand that the, the payment is given by the one who gives the gift, not the one who receives the gift. And so what did Jesus do? He offers himself to pay in full for a free gift called eternal life. That is redemption. And by the way, we see this all over the Bible. I'll give you some examples. Romans 3.25, God sent forth Christ to be the propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission, the removing of our sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. 1 John 4, 10, God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Isaiah 53, 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, 
He shall see his seed, prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11 says he will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. You say, well, propitiation, what does that mean? That is a description of the sacrificial system. That's really what it is. It's helping us to understand this concept. There's a holy God and there's a sinful person. And there's this great gulf between us and nothing can remove that save God himself. There's an offense against God's holiness and his righteousness. And until the offense is removed, we have a problem. And so propitiation is God says, I'm going to offer my son. He's going to willingly go to the cross. He's going to pay the debt and he will become our peace. He will bring me, the sinner, to God in his sacrifice. That's what this passage is all about. Redemption. Third thing I want you to notice is found in verse 69. God's gracious work is the theme of all the Old Testament. Not just the Old Testament, it's the theme of the whole Bible. If anybody ever asks me, what's the Bible all about? It's God telling me how I can be right with him. <laughs> That's really what the Bible is all about. See, well, what about all those stories? Well, it's telling me about why I'm just like they are. Why they're a part of the story that God brings a Savior into the world. They're pictures of helping us understand the nature of redemption. That's what the Bible is all about. That book is all about bringing a sinful person into the presence of a holy God through the sacrifice of Christ. He says, he, God, hath raised up an horn of salvation for us. It doesn't say we raised up a horn of salvation for ourselves. It says, he did it for us. The horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. As he spake by the mouth of his prophets, which have been since the world began. We go to the, we go to the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. You know what the fall of man tells us? It tells us that when God went to Adam and he said, where are you? And why are you hiding? And did you eat the fruit? And why did you do it? All of the back and forth that we see in that passage of scripture. All of the, well, the woman you gave me, she's the reason. And the serpent beguiled me. And that's the reason. All of that stuff. You know what it ultimately shows us? When it's all said and done, God said to Adam and Eve, I'm going to promise redemption. The seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. That's what he's saying. The first statement about the coming of the Messiah, Genesis chapter 3. Or we go to Genesis chapter 22. And we see the story of Abraham and Isaac. And here's Abraham, he's an old man. And here's Isaac, he's a young man, okay? And God tests Abraham. And he says, are you willing to offer your own son as a sacrifice? You know what? Abraham said, I am. Because he believed God could even raise him from the dead if that was what he chose to do. And as they were going up to Mount Moriah... Isaac, who is a young man, and Abraham, who's an old man. Isaac says, hey, dad, I see something here. We've got wood. I'm carrying it. We've got fire. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, well, son, God's going to provide that. God's going to provide himself a lamb. That's the way he put it. And guess what? God provided a substitute on that day. We go to Exodus chapter 12, and you know what that, that's the story of the Passover. And the whole story of the Passover is you have the firstborn 
who is going to die, but God says, I'm going to provide a substitute for the firstborn. If you take the Passover lamb and you kill the Passover lamb and you take the blood from that Passover lamb and you put it on the doorpost, when the angel comes by to take the firstborn in every house, he's going to see that the lamb has died at that house. The blood of the lamb has been shed and he'll pass over because a substitute has died in the place of the firstborn. And everybody who believed what he said and followed through with it, they were spared. Well, this became a, a, an ordinance that they practiced in Israel. Well, they practice it even to this day. When we celebrate the Lord's table, we're actually looking at that event from the other side of the cross, the New Testament in his blood. When John says, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world, you know what he was saying? There's the Passover lamb. There he is. But the greatest passage in all of the Bible that deals with this, I think, is Isaiah 53. Listen to some of the stuff that we read in this, this passage. Verse 4, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's talking about what happened at the cross. Our sin was placed on Christ. You say, well, what about me? I don't believe in Christianity. I'm not a Christian. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't even believe he ever existed. Actually, he did, and he does, and he took your sins on himself. And he's offering you forgiveness of sin to be reconciled to him. You say, even if I don't believe in him? Yeah. You're not saved at this moment, but it's available to you. You can accept it. You can embrace it. In verses 5 and 6, it says this. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Chastisement of our peace. Another way to put that is the punishment that established peace between God and man, he took it on himself. He was bruised for our iniquities. And by his stripes we are healed. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. What is that telling us? That's telling us that our punishment, the one that we deserved, it was poured out on Christ entirely. I know this isn't Easter season. It's not Good Friday. But when we talk about the cross, there was something Jesus said on that cross that's very, very important in the light of what I just read to you. It says, knowing that all things were fulfilled, he said... It is finished. You know what that means? He did it all. He did it all. Everything that had to take place so that a sinful person could be reconciled to a holy God, it was taken care of in Christ. There's nothing for you to give to God. There's nothing to you, for you to do for God that can replace what he did for you. Nothing. In fact, how would you feel if you gave your, your child something very special at Christmas and they looked at you and they said, thanks, Dad, I'd like to pay for that. Some of you might be like, all right, I'll do that. <laughs> Mom wouldn't do that, though. <laughs> no, 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 son, you don't understand. That's a gift. I mean, it's such a trivial thing. It's just gifts that we give to each other at Christmas. But this is the one and only sacrifice that could establish a basis for man and God to be restored. In fact, the way that it's put in Galatians, it says this, if righteousness could come through the law, then Christ has died in vain. In fact, a corollary to that is, if I say that righteousness can come through the law, then I'm saying Christ died in vain. 
Just think about that for a minute. In verse 11, he says, he will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. He shall bear their iniquities. Folks, that's the gospel. If you've come into this place today, maybe a friend brought you, maybe you want to see your niece, your nephew, whatever, but you've never understood that, that's Christianity, folks. Christianity is not the poinsettias in the songs. Christianity is the cross and the empty tomb. And it's the significance of those things. It's the person who went to the cross for you. The last thing I'll mention is this. The gospel establishes the basis for a restored relationship to God. It says that he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness before him all the days of our lives. If you and I could understand how holy God is and how sinful we are, we would be terrified of God. It's true. The reason that people are not terrified of God is because they don't think that they're very bad and they don't think God's very good. (laughs) That's just the bottom line. It's true. But you could serve God without fear, not because you're fit, but because he's dealt with your sin. In verse 74, that he would deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we might serve him without fear. You may not realize this, but the person that you have offended the greatest in all of eternity is not your wife or your kids. It's your creator. It's your creator. We have sinned against him endless times. We can't even begin to recount how many times we've sinned against a holy and righteous God. Yet out of love for you, what did he do? He sent his son to remove your guilt and to remove the shame and to remove the condemnation so that you could come into his presence. His wrath has been removed. Ephesians 2, 3. We were by nature the children of wrath. But God who is rich in his mercy for his great love or with he loved us even we, when we were dead in sins hath quickened us together with Christ by grace you are saved. That's incredible to think about. And then he says not only we can serve him without fear but he says we could serve him in holiness. You ever heard of somebody say, said of a person that person is a saint? We use that term sometimes. Well, if you're a Christian, according to the Bible, you're a saint. You say, I sure don't feel like it too much. It might be questionable what we see sometimes. You realize when when Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he called them the saints in Christ. That's that's pretty stunning to think about. In Ephesians 2.19, it says, he says, Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. And of the household of God. And the last statement. Is we can serve him in righteousness. Verse 75 he states that. Because of what he's done to us. And for us. We can be declared righteous in him. I think one of the greatest passages that tells us this. Is Philippians chapter 3. Listen to what Paul says. This is his own personal testimony. I want you to understand. This is a man who hated Christianity. He hated Christianity to such an extent. That he would take men, women, and children, drag them out of their homes, and have them killed or imprisoned because they named the name of Christ. He was zealous in his antagonism to the church. And this is what he says in verses 8 and 9 of Philippians 3. 
He says, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ my Lord. I count them dung that I may win Christ. Now, when he says the them stuff, he's talking about all of his righteous deeds that he did before he met Christ. He's talking about the whole religious system that he was trusting in and he was using to try to get himself access to God. We know that because that's what he talks about earlier in the chapter. And he says, so that I might be, so that I may be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. That is the gospel, folks. Because of what he did for us, we can be forgiven, we can be cleansed, we can be declared to be saints, we can be made righteous in Christ, declared righteous in his presence because of his work. That is the gospel. So I have one final question. How do all those blessings become yours? That's the question that we all need to answer this morning. I can be forgiven. I can be cleansed. I can be reconciled to God. I can serve him without fear in holiness, in righteousness. I can be saved from my sins. It's I can, I can, I can. So then how does it become mine? Do you understand this? The answer is very simple. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace are you saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. In John chapter 1, John writes, He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made by him. And the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To put it very simply, you have to be born again. This is a spiritual birth. In the same way that God gave us life and we entered into this world and we breathed that first breath of air. By the way, you didn't get life when you breathed your first breath of air. He gave you life when you were conceived. But the simple fact is when you entered into this world and your mom and your dad saw you for the first time and they heard those cries and their hearts melted, you were born physically. God gave you life. You didn't give life to yourself. He gave it to you. In the same way, you need God to give you spiritual life. You need him to give you spiritually dead, spiritual life. You say, well, how does it happen? It's through faith alone in Christ. That word receive means that we accept what the Bible says about Jesus. We accept what it says about our sinfulness. We accept what it says about our guilt. We accept what it says about Christ and who he is. We accept what it says about what he did for us. We accept about why it matters. We accept... That in fact we are unable to come into his presence apart from what Jesus has done for us. The opposite of accept is reject. We say no, I don't believe it. I'm good, I'm fine, leave me alone. Receive, reject. The question is, which one is you? Have you received Christ? You say, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I'm separated from God. Yes, I deserve his punishment forever. Yes, I can't come into his presence or anything I've done for him. Yes, Christ died for my sins. Yes, he rose from the dead. Yes, I want to trust him alone. Which one is it? 
It says, with the heart one believes unto righteousness. With the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Might be that there's a person here this morning who's not trusted Christ. I don't know. I do not know every person that's here this morning. And I certainly don't know everyone that's listening on the live stream this morning or who will listen later today or some other time this week. But I do know this. God is calling you through his word to turn to him with repentance of heart and belief to trust in him alone. If you've never done that, right there in your seat, ask the Lord to save you. Call on his name. It doesn't have to be with an audible voice. You don't have to talk to me. I mean, if you want to talk to me, I'm, I'm good with that, okay? But faith is a matter of the heart. Faith is a matter of saying, I believe, I'm trusting in what he did for me on the cross. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Before we close in prayer, I'm going to ask a simple question. Is there anyone here this morning that say, Joel... I've never understood the gospel until I heard it today. Which means I've never trusted it because I've never understood it. And I need to do that today. Is there anyone that would quietly raise up your hand and say, that's me, I need to do that? Don't be embarrassed. I'm not going to call you out. Certainly if I don't know your name, there's no way I could call your name out. <laughs> if you say, man, I need to talk to you because I'm really uncertain about these things. Please don't leave here without speaking to me or, or, or reaching out later this week. May God help us to understand the meaning of Christmas. Let's bow for prayer. Father, it's with grateful hearts that we reflect on these wonderful truths. We're thankful that 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took on flesh. And he was born in Bethlehem of Judea, he lived a sinless life. He was nailed to a cross. And he shed his blood, blood and died so that we could be redeemed to the Father. He triumphed over death and the resurrection. And through faith alone in Christ and his work alone, we can be redeemed to God. I pray that anyone who doesn't understand this today would turn to you, calling on the Lord for salvation. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like you to take out your hymn books for a final, I guess our only song today. <laughs> and uh, the song we're going to sing is 202, Good Christian Men Rejoice. I'd like to ask you to stand together and let's sing out this very triumphant and joyful song as we think about the Christmas season. Really sing it out.
if you're visiting with us today for the first time, or for the first time in a real long time, we're really glad that you came. And I hope that the things that you heard have been an encouragement to you. And uh, please do uh, take the time to say a thank you to those who put in a lot of labor to make sure that this came together. And I will take very little credit for it. So don't thank me. <laughs> okay. And I uh, don't want you to forget that tonight we have our annual business meeting. And so if you'd like to pick up a financial statement, uh, it'll be there at the uh, desk on the way out. And we hope that you'll be able to make it back tonight, though I know tonight the weather will not be beautiful. It will not be a white Christmas cantata Sunday, <laughs> a very wet one. But we'll see what happens when we come to Christmas and New Year. We'll see. I also want to say this too. Um, if you're here for uh, Christmas Eve, I hope that you'll come on Sunday night. It's at 7 o'clock, and uh, we have our, our annual Christmas uh, Eve candlelight service. There's no real fire in the hands of children, but there are candles that look like real fire in the hands of children. And uh, the music is very, very beautiful, and it's very Christ-centered. We go through the whole Christmas story out of the scriptures, and uh, it's a delightful time. And so I hope that you will... Uh, consider coming to that uh, if you joined us today and, and maybe it's not your typical custom. So let's go ahead and bow together for a word of prayer. And uh, Scott Moore, oh, you know what? There's no like microphone for you. So I will close this in prayer. No offense, I would have, but I don't, know where, I don't know how they'd mic you. So I'm going to go ahead and close this in prayer. And then uh, good to see each of you today. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are very full as we think about the incarnation as we think about redemption, as we think about what we have as Christians because of Christ's sacrifice, as we think about how deep your love is for us, we're very unworthy and we're very humbled and thankful. And so I pray that as we leave this place, our hearts would be filled with great gratitude and praise to you. And give us safety as we head to our homes, especially with the weather being what it is. We ask all this in Christ's name, amen.